Well, happy Easter, Stone Creek. He is risen. Amen. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for joining us in the overflow room and online. We're just so excited um, that you would come just to celebrate this massive day with us. You know, because Easter is this holiday that we celebrate with billions, literally billions. That's not pastorally speaking, right? (laughs) Billions of people all over the globe. You know, it started at 8 o'clock yesterday morning, our time in Auckland, New Zealand. It's Saturday turned to Easter Sunday. And then it began to creep its way across the globe by time zone. And it went to Beijing and it went to to Tel Aviv and it went to Jerusalem and then it was in London and Paris and then, you know, it kind of made its way over to New York and now to us. So we get to celebrate the reality of one message, of one announcement, hope is alive. Amen, somebody? Right, hope is alive. Now, 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 have you noticed this? Have you noticed how the world would try to steal your hope? You notice this? Have you ever heard this phrase? Don't get your hopes up. Like I remember, I think I was 16 and I got my driver's license. Like, dad, can I have a Mustang? He said, Son, don't get your hopes up, right? That's how that goes, right? Don't get your hopes up. Man, man, don't, don't think you can get more than you're capable of getting. Like, don't count on it. Don't hold your breath. How many of you guys have heard of Murphy's Law? If it can go wrong, it will go wrong. Have you ever heard someone say this? This always happens to me. Hopeless phrase. This is a terrible way to live. It's a terrible way to live. And Jesus comes along at Easter screaming, get your hopes up. If it's too good to be true, it must be God. Get your hopes up a little higher, a little higher, a little higher. Because Jesus knew that we were going to face some weight that would crush us in this world. Amen? Like he knew we were going to face some trials and difficulties in this world, and we were going to need a hope that could stand the test of time, that we need a deep-rooted, foundational hope that won't waver with the shifting sands of our cultural day. Amen? And so today, we just want to unpack this idea of living hope. We also are launching a series called Resilient. Hey, let's all say the word resilient together. Resilient. Just learning how to follow Jesus in a world that's falling apart. You know, we're in a world that is uh, nothing like any of us have ever experienced before, from pandemics to political turmoil to um, persecution to materialism and consumerism and secularization, the shifting sand of the sexual ethic um, and just what we face. And we need a hope that can continue to help us live the lives that we want to live that can help us have the marriages that we want that are life-giving and long-lasting, that can help us parent children to become, to become adults who can move out of our homes and live lives of their own and provide for us in our old age, that can help us to build careers that we're proud of, careers of purpose, careers of meaning, and we, we need that kind of resiliency. So over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at a letter in the Bible from a guy named Peter. How many of you guys have heard of Peter before? Like some of you have heard of Peter, like Peter is the hope that most Christians have. Like, like if, you don't, if you don't know a lot about the Bible or a lot about some of the people in the Bible, like Peter is our guy, come on. Like, cause we can identify with Peter. Like, like we can't identify with some people in the Bible like Mary, you know, the mother of the Lord herself, right? And we can't identify sometimes with David. Like, I don't know about you. If I'm, if I'm seeing Goliath, like I'm back in the tent. 
Like, don't I have another brother that can handle this? Like, I don't, I don't understand that. But, but Peter, now Peter, we can relate to. You know why? Because his life is a reality TV show. That's why. Like, Peter, man, one moment he looks so brave and courageous. The next moment he's faltering under the weight of, of questioning. You know, Peter, just to kind of frame up who he is and why he wrote this letter, Peter was one of the top lieutenants of Jesus. He was one of the first people that Jesus grabbed and said, follow me. Jesus was placing his faith in Peter to carry the message forward when he went into heaven. Like Peter was one of the oldest, probably the oldest of all of Jesus' followers. So he naturally was looked to as the leader. And then there came a point after Jesus had been arrested, that would have been on Thursday, and Jesus was arrested and he was on trial, that, that Peter denies even knowing Jesus. And it wasn't like he denied knowing Jesus to a Roman soldier who was about to take him out. He denies knowing Jesus to a little servant girl. And she asks him, hey, aren't you, aren't you with Jesus? Aren't you from Galilee? He's like, no, I don't, don't know him, never heard of him. I mean, that would be like, you know, a famous preacher today. Uh, maybe somebody, you know, like Billy Graham. Maybe you've heard of Billy Graham when he was alive. Maybe Rick Warren and somebody famous like that. Stephen Gibbs, somebody famous like that. You know, somebody <laughs> jokes. And somebody's saying, hey, aren't you a Christian? No, 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 I'm out on that. Like, hate that Jesus guy. I don't even know anything about it. Like, if somebody did that, that would trend on Twitter just a little bit, wouldn't it? Like, imagine, imagine the Pope, someone asking about Jesus like, yeah, no, I, I gave up on that a while ago right? I mean, they'd ask for his hat back if that happened. I mean, and this is, this is Peter. But Peter, we see what after that, after that denial, Peter gets restored. And after that denial, Peter emerges in power. Now, now he always has some quirks. Like he, he's never completely erased of quirks. But Peter writes this letter to some churches that he had founded. Now, now, the way this would have worked was when Peter wrote the letter to a church, a church, they would stand up in front of the church and read it. So it's almost as if Peter's writing this letter to us today. Now, he's writing it to the Roman, into a Roman culture. The Roman Empire was the one who was the ruling, of the, the ruling authority of the day. And Rome had begun to stop fighting battles. And they had turned their attention more towards entertainment with such things that, as the, uh, at the, the gladiators at the Colosseum. They had turned their attention toward building lives of comfort and political divisions had risen up and conflict was happening and there was just this life of turmoil. Does that sound familiar to anybody? And this is the, this is the circumstance that Peter is writing this letter to and he's writing this letter to these churches so that they will know that they should be an outpost of hope, an outpost of of hope. If you have your Bible, grab it real quick. We're going to go to 1 Peter and just start at the very beginning of this letter. Beautiful picture of the gospel in 1 Peter. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Um, you can grab your phone also and look at the Bible on there. And I don't think the Masters has started yet, so don't be checking anybody's score. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles. I'm gonna, I'm gonna unpack those two words really clearly in just a second. Of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
10x to you. Peace multiplied in your heart. Gospel multiplied 10 times, 100 times, over and over and over. This is Peter's desire for this letter in our lives and the lives of people that he wrote this to. Circle that word multiplied. If you, if you have your Bible, circle it, highlight it, ask your sit. You're going to see it come up again in August around this place as we talk about what it means to multiply and to be a church that multiplies. But God wants to multiply something in your life this morning and, and throughout the rest of your life. So it says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. So let me unpack a little bit about what it means to be elect. Now, elect just means to be chosen. It means that in the Bible, what we see is that God chooses you. Like there's nothing that you can do to prove yourself to God. There's no amount of money you can earn. There's no amount of morality that you can, uh, that you can, morals that you can keep. Like there's nothing you can do to prove yourself to God. When we step in faith to begin to follow Jesus, we immediately, we are chosen. We are chosen. And he uses family language because he uses like God the Father in that, right? And so we are chosen. And because we're chosen, we, we should live differently. Now, now, I realize not everybody in the room follows Jesus. You're not all, um, you're, some of you were just figuring it out. Some of you came with your family today. And that's awesome. Like, we're glad that you're here. Um, we're glad you have a family that loves you enough to bring you to church and to an amazing church too, I would say, by the way, come on. And so, um, but for people who follow Jesus, there, there should be some things that mark us differently because we're chosen. Like, we should live differently. There should be something about our identity that calls us out. And it's not, it's not that we're uh, trying to pick a fight. We're trying to be salt and light, Right? Like, and too many times Christians kind of try to pick a fight and they think that that's them uh, following the way of Jesus. And it's actually just, just them being dumb, right? But what we, the way that you can, like, identify yourself and stand out, for instance, one, one way would be through generosity. Like, if your neighbor got a hold of your tax return and saw how much you gave the charitable giving, like, they should be embarrassed about how little they give because of how much you give. Amen? Like, this is some things that should, should mark us. Like, if you're dating today, your level, your sexual ethic and level of sexual purity should be challenging to people around you in a way that it shows how much self-respect you do have and that they want to live like that. You know, if you're married, how you talk to your spouse and how you treat them and take care of them should stand out that when someone has a question about marriage, they want to come and ask you about your marriage. The way that you parent your kids should be different. The way you sit in the stands at a lacrosse game should be different. And not, <laughs> wait, what are y'all laughing at? I don't know what you mean. Because um, I've had kids that played sports, so I, I kind of get that one. Uh, and so, so we, should, we should have this identity that causes us just to, to stand out a little bit. Um, C.S. Lewis has a quote that says this. Uh, he, he, uh, Lewis talking about what it looks like to live in the world uh, that we live in. He says, if you read the history, you will find that Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It's since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. And so when we see this idea of elect, we're chosen, that's our identity, but also the idea of exile, that's our address. And so Peter is writing to a group of people who are uh, a church that they have dispersed. That's why he uses the word dispersion. They are dispersed all over the Roman Empire because of persecution. So that is one meaning. But also, he's pointing out to them one truth that we all know. We all know it deep down in here. We don't live like it, but we all know it. This world is not our home. This world is not our home. Like there, there is something else that, that we're living towards. The Bible says that God has put eternity in our hearts 
And what that does is causes us to whisper and to move and to look and to be restless and to feel this sense of angst at times because this world is not our home. We don't stay here. Our hope is not here. Our hope is in heaven. Amen? Like our hope is not here. And, and even, even our culture gets this. Have you seen Stranger Things? The Upside Down? Come on, somebody. Are y'all, is, it, are, is this crowd too old to understand Stranger Things? How about the Matrix? Same thing. Come on. Like some of you oldies, I don't know what happened before that. So if you do, you let me help, help a brother out. But um, then there's a, there's a current movie that's out, um, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And it has the same idea. And I accidentally watched it. Worst movie I've ever seen. Don't watch it. It is horrible. But it does let us know that even culture recognizes, you recognize this world is not your home. Like think about when you travel, because a lot of you guys travel, and you're, you know, in some Marriott somewhere or Hilton, and you're rolling up in your bed, and that's not your bed. It's not the same one. It's not like being at home. It's not your shower. You know, you don't know what's in the pantry in the kitchen. You can't just walk down there and grab something. They've got it all locked up for you. It is not your home. Like, I just want you to imagine this, this scenario. Let me paint a picture. How many of you guys like to go to the beach? Let's say, call it 30A. Any 30A fans in here? Like, how many of you just got back from 30A? Anybody come back just to get to church? Listen, crowns for you in heaven. Let's go. Um, <laughs> but just imagine this. You head down to 30A. You're staying at Seaside or Watercolor or somewhere, Blue Mountain, whatever. And so you, you, you go on VRBO. You rent the house, man. You, and you get the one with the, you, you've got the right bedrooms. It's got a pool out back. You got the amenities that you want. You got ahead of the game. You reserved it early. Uh, you paid more than they were asking because you wanted to be sure you got the right house. And so on Sunday, you drive down there, and then you make your way up to Publix, and you fight that crowd, which is worse than fighting this crowd. If you've been there, you know. If you know, you know. And you grocery shop for the week, and you get prepared, and you've got everything, and you've got the toys, and you've got the food. And Sunday, man, you're just so excited about the week. Monday morning rolls around. Family gets up. Let's go to the beach. All pumped. You've already rented your uh, umbrella and chairs from Cabana Man. You are set. And, and you t- turn to your family, you're like, you know what? I'm going to let you guys go on. I don't really like the color of this kitchen. So I'm going to stay back. I'm going to paint the kitchen while y'all go to the beach, the reason we're here. So your family goes to the beach. You stay back and you paint the kitchen. Foolish, right? They come back at the end of the day, best day ever at the beach. They saw dolphins. They had the first ever sighting of a whale in the gulf outside, right? <laughs> like... You missed it. You missed it. Tuesday rolls around. You, everybody wakes up like, Dad, you're going to go? No, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to go today. I, I feel like if I had knocked this wall out, it would give this an open concept, and they'd be able to earn more money when they rent this house. And you spent the entire week, you spend the entire week renovating this house that is not yours with money that you can't keep, and you missed out on memories You missed out on conversations. You missed out on the reason why you went to the beach. You would say how foolish that is, wouldn't you? How much more foolish is it that we live our lives like that, that we invest time and energy and resources in things that won't last and things that we actually know won't last, but for some reason, we can't help ourselves. Listen, why why do I spend so much time building a life that I can't keep. This world, your hope, it's not here. And Peter points that out. 
As he goes on into verse 3, Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Listen, he just seemed just pointing to the future, just pointing to what's coming. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So he starts off with this idea of great mercy. Man, great mercy. Like, don't you love mercy? Don't you love mercy? What I've discovered about me and about a lot of people, I love mercy for me. I love a second chance. I love somebody to overlook my offenses, but I like judgment for other people, don't you? Like, I tend to like judgment for other people, not me. Because obviously, I've made some mistakes before, so you should give mercy, but, but, but you, you should know better. You're not allowed a mistake. Just, can you just say traffic for a second? Like, how many times have you been cut off in traffic or somebody does something, and you're just like, what in the world are they doing right? As if you've never made a traffic mistake, a driving mistake, right? I mean, all the perfect drivers in the house, we're gonna, I'm going to go out and look in the parking lot when y'all leave and just see what happens. Like, like, this happened to me a few weeks ago. I had this judgment thing kind of rise up in me. So uh, it was two weeks ago. And I'd gone to play golf, and uh, I haven't played golf in it since the summer because I'd had surgery and I couldn't play, and I'm not that great anyway. But so we went to play golf, and so we make it up to me and a buddy of mine, and we go up to the first tee. And some, how many golfers in here? You know a little bit about what I'm talking about? Okay, you got it, you got it. It's a pretty simple sport, just this little white ball down the fairway, no big deal. Um, and so we go up, and uh, the, there's a starter who tells you if you can go, right? There's a starter. And so he tells us, you know, we're, we're good to go. And so my buddy goes up, and he walks, and we're talking, you know, chatting it up. He hits it dry, and man, right down the middle of the fairway. It's gorgeous, like awesome. I'm like, man, way to go. That is pressure. And so I step up. We're talking again, taking our time, not really in a hurry. I put a ball in. Bam, I hit it. Most beautiful drive of my life. This game is easy, I'm thinking, you know, right down the middle, not quite as far as his, unfortunately, but still pretty good, right? And then after that happens, I reach down, I pick up my tee, and I notice coming out of somebody's backyard are some golfers that were playing ahead of us. Now, a rule in golf is if somebody's playing ahead of you, you don't hit into them. That's a big no-no, right? A big faux pas. But these guys were so bad. They were way over in somebody else's backyard. Even the starter didn't even know they were playing golf at the moment. So this guy starts waddling across the, I mean, walking across the fairway. <laughs> Did I say that? He starts walking across the fairway. And if it was you, I'm not sorry um, because of what I'm about to tell you. So he walks across and he goes over to my buddy's ball and he picks it up and puts it in his pocket. He walks over to my ball, picks it up, puts it in his pocket. And I'm thinking to myself, well, number one, it was my first golf ball of six months, so it's not a very expensive one. But number two, I'm like, you're miserable, right? You're miserable. So in that moment, I turned to my buddy. I'm like, you know what? If we catch up to them on the green, we're going to have a decision to make because <laughs> I wanted some judgment in that moment, right? And we have this idea, but God gives us what? God gives us mercy, Man, God gives us mercy that Jesus came and walked where we walked. He went through the pain that we went through. Jesus experienced difficulty and loneliness. And why? So he could show us mercy. Because of his great mercy, we have been born again to a living hope. Born again to a living hope. And this idea of being born again is what we see is when you are made new. Like you get a new Life, You get a fresh start. The one thing about you being born is you never bragged about it. 
You never thought, man, I did a great job getting born. Man, I, I was awesome. They should write a book about me being born. No, 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 no. You did nothing. And this is what God does for us. It says that, that, that everything is made new. Old things have passed away. New things have come. We have new motivations. We have new desires. We have new wants. We have a new perspective. We are made new. We're made new to a what? A living hope. And here we have it. Here we have it. God's mercy, born again to a living hope that he gives us. Listen, over 180 times in this book, the word hope is used. I bet nobody ever told you that before. This word, this Bible, when you open it, hope just spills out onto the floor. Hope just pours out into your life. And as you read the Bible, and I know it's fallen out of favor in recent days, and it's been used as a weapon, and it should never be. It's a lifeline. But, but hope is on every page, and every page points to Jesus. Hope just pours out of this into our lives as we read it. That's why it's so important. It's why it reveals who Jesus is for us. It is a living hope that we have. I mean, we have this certainty. We have a certainty. We're not built on some wishful thinking. I mean, we have this certainty that Jesus rose from the dead. Do you know that you're better when you live with hope? Have you noticed this? Like, think about the little things that you hope for and, and the little things you look forward to. Like, like, what are you looking forward to? Think about this for a second. Like, it may be something small. Even that matters, right? You may be looking forward to lunch, okay? Maybe having your favorite Easter lunch, or dinner, or whatever. You may be looking forward to everybody's leaving and you're going back home. You know, I don't, I don't have you been together all week. Um, you may be looking forward to a vacation. You may be looking forward to closing a deal. You may be forward to uh, a party or celebrate. Like there's something you're looking forward to, and that just keeps you moving, doesn't it? Like, and this is just a whisper. It's just a, it's just a little directive for us to remind us of the larger hope that we live for. Amen? Like my mom, a couple of years ago, my mom's, you know, She's a little older. I've almost called her old, but she's probably watching. Um, my mom's in her, uh, in her 80s, and a couple of years ago, she had surgery, was very ill. And, uh, man, just uh, so ill that I had to go home and check on her. And so I walked in the hospital room, and I had to kind of break some rules because it was COVID. Y'all remember COVID? Uh, not going into hospital rooms. So I uh, may or may not have broken some rules. I go into her room. And when I'm talking to her, you know, she's got a tube coming out of her nose, and she's just miserable. And she just looks at me. She says, Stephen, I just don't know if I can do it. I said, Mom, the Lord sent me here to tell you that you will see your granddaughter get married this year. Man, that was all she needed. Man, it was like a switch flipped. She began to fight. She began to battle. And she just got to go to Israel with us a month ago, right? That's what hope will do. For you. Listen, you're better when you have hope. It's good to look forward to small things, but you have to have a living hope and not a dead hope. We have a living hope because of the resurrection. Peter says it, because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. A living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Listen, the resurrection it is rooted in reality. Now, now, one of the things that I've done before on an Easter Sunday may be to kind of walk through the proofs of the resurrection. And I could do that, or you could go back online and listen to some things that we've done, because that's not what today is about. And sometimes people don't believe in the resurrection, not because of ignorance, but because of arrogance, because we just want to do our own thing. But just a couple of bullet points just to kind of remind us exactly why we're so confident the resurrection happened. Number one, the tomb was empty. They have not built any altars anywhere to celebrate the bones of Jesus. And I promise you, the Catholic Church is masters at doing this. 
and they would have built an altar about, around the bones of Jesus so that we could go and worship that and we could go and pay attention to that. They're not there. They don't even try to find him because they know why he walked out of the grave, right? Second thing, the disciples, Peter specifically, so Peter's denying Jesus after he's dead. Peter's hiding there in the upper room in Galilee, just scared to death. Who wouldn't be? I'm not throwing stones, right? They're hiding. And then all of a sudden, after the resurrection, man, they are powerful. They are in front of magistrates and in front of military. They are boldly proclaiming God. They're saying, don't talk like that. And Peter's like, hey, we don't know whether it's right in your sight not to say, but we have to do what God's told us to do. They have this boldness. So that's the second thing. Hey, third thing, the early church just exploded. And guess what? The church, contrary to popular opinion, is still marching forward. Amen? Right? God has done something to breathe into the church. And the reason the church continues to move is because the church is alive and believes in a God who is alive. It is a living hope. And there's so many other reasons that we have a living hope. It is verifiable. And this is the truth that we stand on. We're not hoping with wishful thinking. We have our feet firmly planted in the historical fact of Jesus resurrection over 2,000 years ago. It is the cornerstone of our faith. So it is the resurrection in, in, that we have, and it moves us into the future. And Peter begins to talk about an inheritance, an inheritance. Man, inheritance is something that you receive when somebody else dies. You know this? Just two weeks ago, we were at our attorney's office kind of getting everything in order, and I'm, you know, just who's going to get what? And I'm like, I'm not leaving anything to anybody, you know. I mean, I want to, I'm going to give it all to the church. No, I'm kidding. Um, but but we're gonna, you leave things to people when someone dies. And this is the inheritance that we got Why? when Jesus died, okay. And now, it's even better because he lives. But we get this inheritance that's set for us in heaven. Peter uses, Peter uses three words to describe this. So let me say this. What you believe about the future, what you believe about your future, shapes everything about you. Doesn't it? Like what you believe about your future shapes everything about you. It shapes how you parent. It shapes how you spend your money. It shapes how you make decisions. It shapes what jobs you take. It shapes what vacation you go on. What you believe about the future, what you really believe about the future, shapes everything about you. And the first thing that we see is this inheritance. It's imperishable. It means that it can't be broken. It can't die. It's imperishable. It lasts forever. Have you noticed how much brokenness is in the world? And broken marriages, broken dreams, broken bodies, just, just broken, broken government, broken economy. Man, man, it's just broken. And the inheritance that we get that God has stored up for us in heaven can never be broken. It can never die. You know, the greatest enemy we face, obviously, is death. And we know that Man, death is something that comes for all of us, and it comes sometimes way too soon. But the promise of the resurrection is this inheritance when we're reunited with people that we love is that, that, that it can't die. It's a certainty that we will see them again. Man, this hope, this living hope, it's imperishable. It says it's undefiled, undefiled. Now, that's, that's a pretty churchy word, religious word. Let me unpack that just a little bit. Now, now, the word defiled in the Bible is meant you couldn't go, you were unclean spiritually, ceremonially, ritually, and you couldn't go into the presence of God. So you were dirty, you were defiled. And so to be undefiled means that you could have access to God. Now, now in Peter's day, before, he was, uh, before Jesus, he was a Jew, so he would have understood ritual cleansings and all the rituals you would go through to be holy and to be clean in the sight of God. 
But, but here's what happened when Jesus was executed. You know, in the temple, there was this massive curtain, 30 feet high and wide and long, and uh, it weighed several hundred, uh, almost 1,000 pounds. And so that curtain separated people from what was called the Holy of Holies, like the presence of God. Like you couldn't get there. You couldn't get through, okay? <clears throat> and when Jesus dies, as he's hanging on the cross, this is the veil, the curtain was torn into, just ripped into, Sim- symbolizing, more than symbolizing, but giving us access to God directly. That we don't need a priest, we don't need a mediator, we don't need anybody. We have direct access to God, meaning God's not holding our sin against us. So, so for those of us who follow Jesus, our sins are forgiven. And so God's not holding our sins against us. Have you noticed that you hold more against you than God does? Like nobody outside of God reminds themselves, like knows more about their failures and their regrets. Like you wake up with them every day. You may be in a conversation and so you'll have that thought, man, I, w- I wonder if, if they knew. You, you have this sometimes imagining and believing someone knows something about you that they don't know about you. You're the one who has that soundtrack in your mind that plays over and over and over again. And generally it's negative, not positive. God's not holding that against you. Why? Because our inheritance is undefiled. It's imperishable. It's undefiled and it is unfading. Everything fades. Everything fades. Start with your cell phone. Like how many of you guys need an upgrade today? How many of you guys still have a home button? You're way behind. Your phone, I bet it it stays charged for like 10 minutes, doesn't it? Like it just, everything fades. We always need to upgrade. Your car fades. Your house fades will fade and need to be redone. Like your body's fading. Have you noticed this? Right? Hair's falling out. You got some fading hairlines in here. Man, your, your skin begins to fade. It begins to sag. The only thing on our bodies that doesn't fade seems to be these small fat pockets that we develop as we get older. Man, those are not fading. They're actually getting bigger. But our bodies begin to deteriorate. Our joints begin to hurt. We find it harder to do things we used to do. We find it, you know, um, it, we don't recover as quickly as we used to. Everything is fading, but not our eternal inheritance in heaven. Man, God has given us inheritance. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. Man, man we, can't, we can't hope in our nation. We can't hope in our job. We can't hope in our political affiliation. We can't hope in our marriage or our children. Everything's fading. We have a living hope in Jesus. And we have this tendency not to have a living hope, but to have a dead hope. You know, we'll put our, we'll put our hope in our bank account. What is that? Dead presidents. Come on. We'll put our hope in some kale and antioxidants. What's that? Dead plants. And the list goes on. We put our hope in essential oils. Does anybody really know what those are? We have a dead hope, and it it impacts how we live. We have a dead hope. Man, people that you know that have a dead hope, you know what they're doing? They're living right here, moment. They blame their circumstances on everything. You'll notice they go from relationship to relationship. And whose fault is it? It's never their fault. Why? Because their hope is in what's happening right here. They go from job to job, from city to city, and everything is right here. And they're always looking at their circumstances as the problem. When the problem isn't out there, the problem's in here. The problem is their hope is not alive. Listen, you need a living hope today. A hope that can't waver, a hope that won't back down, a hope that can stand the test of time, and a hope that can stand up under the weight of your life. That hope 
is Jesus. He's not the ultimate hope. He's not the best hope. He is hope. He is hope. Now, sometimes hope can just come across as just blind optimism. Don't worry, be happy. But we know it's not how this world works. And Peter addresses it. In verse 6, Peter starts, he says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you don't now see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So Peter starts off by talking about this idea of being grieved by various trials. I don't know about you, but I want my life to be on cruise control. And I want to be able to just set the speed, set the direction. I don't want any stop signs, stoplights, speed bumps, traffic, accidents, police cars, like none of it. I just want to be able to go, don't you? I want life to be easy. I'm not looking for growth opportunities, are you? I don't need to learn patience, Lord. But we know that's not the way life works. Man, we're going to face some hardship. We're going to face tragedy. Any faith that that can't stand up and address face-to-face, head-on difficulties in life is not a faith that's alive. It's a faith that's dead. Man, we, we, we go through difficulties, and our blessing, though, our blessing with the Lord's help, our burden, excuse me, can become a blessing. Listen, hope is the DNA of people who learn from their loss. It's in the DNA of people who learn from their loss. And Peter hits it head on, talking about grieving today. You know, I think one of the things that we know is that life runs on two, on two rails, right? Joy and sorrow, right? right. And... and, and what keeps us moving along the train tracks of life is hope. It's what keeps us going. And we, we face difficulties. Some of you guys have faced some difficulties. And I wonder if you'd be willing to admit it today. I wonder if you'd be willing to think through, man, I'm, I'm walking through a dark time. I, I'm, I'm living in confusion. I'm not sure how this is going to turn out. Uh, I wish this weren't happening to me. I don't want to tell anybody because everybody else's life seems put together. I don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to hold them back. I, want to, I don't want to bog them down. I wonder how many people would raise their hand if I asked you to. Man, I'm going through a difficult time. But on the flip side, some of you guys, some of you guys have faced this down. Some of you guys have stood over caskets and buried people that were close to you. And somehow the Lord showed up in that. He began to heal you and give you strength to move on. And you didn't just get over it, Right? You didn't just let go and let God, a coffee cup slogan that is worthless in those moments. Man, but somehow that hope rose up in you and God did a work in your heart that helped you move forward. Like some of you have stood that diagnosis in the face, stared that diagnosis in the face. Man, you've moved through it and God's carried you through it and you've become better for it. And it's not that you want that to happen again or wish it would have happened, but you are grateful for what God did in your heart. Like, I wonder how many of you are in the room today. And what I'd like to do, if that's you today, if God's done something like that in your life, life, would you be willing right now just to raise your hand with me? 
Just raise your hand. If that's happened in your life, just raise your hand. Now, if you're going through a dark time, I want you to look around. Keep your hands up. I want you to look around. This is proof. Man, God will be there. Man, God will do something. God will pick you up. Thank you. God will help you. And I'm not saying it's going to be easy. And we have to realize, man, Jesus said this. He said, in this world, you'll have trouble. Take heart. I've overcome the world. He says that weeping may last for a night, but joy comes what? In the morning. We mourn with those who mourn and we weep with those who weep. There are difficult times that we face in life. But God has come along and experienced those. Jesus himself suffered. He watched friends die. He died himself. He suffered. He struggled through loneliness. Jesus knows. Jesus knows. That's why he's where we should place our hope. Jesus knows. And then then he goes on and he uses this idea of kind of gold that perishes, even though it's tested by fire. Now, now in that culture, Caesar was the one in charge of the Roman Empire, and he, he got all his power and all his prestige and all his importance by how much gold he had. And he would make these massive displays of gold just to show how rich he was. And so Peter goes in and talks about this process of refining gold. Now, now, now what happens with gold and Basically, if you're panning for gold, right, you, you grab a, just what appears to be just a pan full of dirt. You sift the dirt out, kind of like life. Sometimes you got to sift through some dirt to get to the gold. Hello? And then you get some gold, and then what happens? You melt it, and the dross or the, uh, uh, the dirt and everything kind of floats up to the top. You scoop it off, and what do you have? They have this purification of gold, this pure gold. And, and, and what, what Peter's saying is that sometimes, sometimes the difficult times, the purification burns away false hopes, places where we put our hope that actually aren't going to deliver. And it says that is more, your faith is more precious than gold. Why? It's going to last. It's going to go ahead of you. It's going to be in eternity. It's going to be your inheritance. The faith, your faith is more precious than gold. How do I grow hope? How do I grow hope? What what is Peter saying here for me to grow the hope in my heart? Two things. Number one, he's just remembering what we call the gospel, the good news. He's just remembering. He's having the people who are reading this letter remember some of the basics. Can I just share that with you for a second? Man, there is a God. He is good. He's like a good dad is what Peter's saying. Calls him father. And we've been adopted into his family. Man, God is so good. God has given us everything that we love. I just want you to think about today when you go out to lunch or if you eat at home, whatever you eat for Easter, when you eat that, God made that. God gave that to you, right, from from potato salad to chocolate chip cookies. God made that because he's good. But there's a problem, and the problem is our sin. It's our rebellion. It's our walking away from him. And until we come to realize that, we'll never experience hope. We'll always be dependent on us. We'll always be blaming other people in our circumstances for our life. And our problem is that we have sinned and fallen short of the standard that God had for us. Man, but there's hope. And his name is Jesus. Man, there is hope. His name is Jesus. And the only response to that is to surrender our lives to follow him. Like, this is the gospel. So simple. So Peter remembers the gospel. The second thing he commands us to do, rejoice. Hello? So simple. Rejoice. Celebrate is what that means. Like, like we, we are not good at celebrating, are we? 
Man, you know, when, when your kids come home with something that they've done good, it's like, yeah, I see you got four A's, but what about that B over there? Let's talk about that. You know, I know you've never had a car accident, but you got a speeding ticket. I guess that's okay, right? We, we focus on the negative so many times, and we don't celebrate the positive. And we should just take more time to celebrate. You know, at my house, when something really good happens, it's got to be special. I had this thing that I call the victory dance. And I lose my mind, right? You want to see it? No. Um, <laughs> but we should learn to celebrate. Man, we should celebrate birthdays, and we should celebrate Tuesdays, and we should celebrate anniversaries, and we should celebrate when God does something good, and we should celebrate. We should be a people marked by celebrating because what that does is, man, it just builds these building blocks of hope in your heart that reminds you this world is not your home and that one day there's going to be a massive celebration around the uh, table in heaven that we're going to get to experience. And this is what our soul is longing for. And it's just going to fan that flame of hope in our hearts. Man, we need to remember the gospel and we just need to celebrate. You just make up your mind right now when you get out of here, maybe you're here by yourself, you're going to go to some restaurant, you're going to celebrate with the person who's helping you, right? Or maybe you're here with somebody. What are you going to celebrate when you get in the car? Like, decide right now. Like, we should have a train of horns honking coming out of the parking lot today, celebrating. I don't know if we'll get in trouble for that. I just made that up right now. But <laughs> celebrate. we got to learn to celebrate so much better. Listen, hope, hope is just a concept until you do something with it. Hope is just an idea. It's just ambiguous until you actually do something with it. So, so it reminds me. It reminds me of a story that I heard this week uh, connected with the Masters. You know, there's an amateur playing. His name is Sam Bennett. Sam Bennett. It kind of struck me. One of my son's name is Bennett. And uh, he, he's done pretty well. Some of you know. And um, uh, I think he won the Masters earlier this morning while y'all were in church. But um, great story. Sam grows up in a small town in Texas. Uh, and... Uh, and if you know anything about small towns in Texas, right, you know, man, that family's big, right? Family's the core of everything in those small towns. And Sam had two other brothers, and, you know, they were growing up together. And Sam started playing golf on this little nine-hole course in his small town. Uh, and so his dad was just so proud of him. But uh, <clears throat> when his dad turned 45, Sam was just a teenager. He was diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's at the age of 45. And so over the next eight years... He, he began to watch his dad deteriorate. And his dad would just forget things. He would forget appointments. He would forget names. He would just, he'd forget things. He lost some of his fine motor skills, you know, and he couldn't, couldn't eat, couldn't write, those things that you do. And, you know, life got difficult. And then one day they were out in the yard, him and his mom were out in the yard, and they were just having this conversation kind of about their dad and how he had, at times, even forgot who they were, but, but he always knew. And you could tell he knew, even though he couldn't quite grab their name. And so the dad walks out uh, one day while they're outside, and he just walks up to Sam, and he says, don't wait to do something. Don't wait to do something. Five, five simple words. And Sam was so captured by that. He's like, Dad, I need you to write that down. So they go back inside. And, of course, his dad had lost the ability to write. So it took him like 15 minutes that he was able to kind of scribble out, don't wait do something and he scribbled it on this little piece of paper and then Sam took it to a tattoo artist and he had he had those words that cryptic note that you could barely read he had it tattooed right here on his wrist so that every time Sam lines up for a golf shot 
whether it's a practice shot on the range and it's a drive on number 18 at Augusta. He looks down and he sees those five words, don't wait to do something. And I wonder for us if every day when we got up and we looked at our hands, we remembered the nail scars in Jesus' hands. And we thought of these five words, the empty grave gives living hope. Five words, they're so simple. But five words that will change everything about you. The empty grave gives living hope. Let's pray together.